Well, take your Bibles, turn with me, not to 1 Corinthians, but to Ephesians, rather, today, taking a a week break from that ongoing study. We're looking today at chapter 5, verses 1, all the way through chapter 6, verse 4, page 949, or wherever you find it on your devices. I don't necessarily preach a Father's Day or Mother's Day message every, every year. Um, for one thing, there's actually not that many passages in the Bible that are specifically about a mom's role uh, or a dad's role, though uh, we have some of that in this passage today. Um, but I thought I'd take this Mother's Day to focus on family, but to look at it with a pretty large uh, flying over view because we're going to look at God's family and how our relationship to God as his child kind of narrows down to show us what we should be like in our families, marriage and parenting. So we're going to look at a larger context of actually some very classic, well-known passages maybe about marriage and parenting, which really starts at chapter 5, verse 22. But here's kind of our approach so we see the big picture. In the, like a funnel, basically. Uh, God's family is where we start at the top of the funnel. The first 17 verses of chapter 5 are saying, you know, you're, you're his kids, here's how you should act. When we get to verses 18 to 21, he begins to apply that not just to his family, the church, but then in a church where we actually know each other and have relationships. How do we relate to each other? And then he gets to marriage, which then, of course, leads to understanding something of God's view for parenting. So that's kind of an overview of where this passage is going and what Paul was doing, it seems, in these important parts. So uh, first of all, then, God's family, chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Notice the family term. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved what? Children. We're children. And live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So imitate God, which means what? Sacrifice. Those last two terms, offering and sacrifice, spell death. Family is a place where we die to self And when we relate to God properly, we are dying to self. So we should expect there to be sacrifice because we have a father who loved us so much that he sacrificed for us. So this this really becomes like the foundation of understanding uh, the Christian family. Parenting is sacrifice. Marriage is sacrifice. When, When you get married, you can no longer do everything you want to do because you're doing it together. You're making decisions together. When you become a parent, obviously you cannot do everything you want to do. Those kids are there all the time. And you got to do something with them. So there is sacrifice. But that's why there is hope. The reality is that we can, we can bemoan the state of the family in the world. And indeed, they are seemingly confused about marriage, about morality, gender, There's a lot of confusion. Or we can go back to the plan of what the family is supposed to be like. And so like an architect constantly goes back to that trailer to look at those architect's plans and say, what do I do? We can go back to the Word of God and say, what should it be like? 
And one of the reasons the world does such a poor job of doing family well is because they have become devoted to self. We, we, we all need to be self-fulfilled and, and, and do what we want to do. And so marriage gets in the way. And so if it gets in the way too much, we discard the marriage. Your kids get in the way, so we actually discard kids. The worst case of which would be abortion. But we're all wanting to, in our world, accomplish and self-fulfill and do our own thing. And that's not what family is. And the first place we learn that is in our relationship with God. And so in the church... As believers in Christ, relating to God, we can begin to understand what family is about because it's sacrifice, and he modeled it for us. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. There's no absence of love because, in fact, he sacrificed. So we can walk into our front doors saying, I have come home to do sacrifice. Not to be self-fulfilled, but to do sacrifice. It'll be hard, but that's also what makes it so good. So what does that look like? We, you may have noticed we're studying a passage that's longer than what we usually handle in a, in a, in a Sunday morning message, so we won't cover everything. But uh, in this next paragraph, I'd like us to point out verses, in verse 3, one of the basic building blocks of a family, which is both um, moral purity and financial contentment. Okay? Verse 3. But among you, there must not be even a hint, mine says, of sexual immorality. And other, other translations say, uh, it must not be even named among you. Among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. Because these are improper for God's holy people. As you look at that, we might first of all wonder, okay, He's talking, in fact, this section is really a little bit more about immorality, but then he keeps throwing in the greed issue. What, what, do, what does sexual immorality and greed have in common? The common thing seems to be is that we want what God doesn't want for us. What isn't best for us? Isn't that a typical parenting issue? And God, our Heavenly Father, who dearly loves us, says, I don't want you to have some things because that'll be best. There's a sexual version of unholy longings, and there is a monetary materialistic version of unholy longings. There are uh, things that we should not have in both realms. Either longing can replace our love for God. And remember, we're kids, verse 1, who should be imitating our Heavenly Father, who is holy, and that would be unholy. Let not there be a hint or as some of your translations said, that, that sexual immorality would not even be named. In other words, you look at a person, and, and from everything you can know about a person, there is no sexual immorality there. The term for sexual immorality is actually the Greek word porneia. What English word do we get for that? There are so many ways to be immoral. Pornography is obvious. Flirting when married in bed if not married, raunchy, sexually immoral things that uh, fill our shows on our devices. And the world would say, that's not a problem. Uh, as long as, 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 as you're consenting. Uh, who are you hurting? 
the child of God says, no, who am I imitating? Who am I imitating? And I will be hurting myself, if not others. So God is holy. We want to imitate him, verse 1, in these areas of morality and materialism. Because anything else, end of verse 3, would be improper for God's holy people. Holy people. We're supposed to imitate God who is holy. Holy. So he calls us to holiness because he is holy and he sent his holy, perfect son to the cross to pay for our unholiness. So how could we dare intentionally, solly, smear, violate his holiness? Imitate God in your morality and your contentment. Picture yourself, what, what does God want for me? The next section, jumping to verse 8. How else do we imitate God? Living to please Him. Living to please Him. For you were once darkness, that's before you came to faith in Christ, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Notice the children term again. This is, this is God's family instructions. Live as children of light, verse 9, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And, bottom line, find out what pleases the Lord. So have nothing to do with the fruitless, compared to the fruit of the light, the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them, uh, etc. We are called children of light. It's kind of the, the family motto is light. God is light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So you're children of light. You're part of a light family. If, if, when a child's adopted, they not only get a new name, but now they suddenly have uh, a new way of living, new authority, new expectations, new rules. So what are the, what are the new rules in the children and the family of light? Well, he defines exactly what the metaphor of light is, goodness, righteousness, and truth. Uh, you have to realize that holiness is not simply to be anti-sin, but pro-goodness, righteousness, and truth. Sometimes our view of holiness is simply like stomping out fires. Well, that's wrong. Don't do that. That's wrong. Don't do that. And we'll get a whole sense of a holiness like it's all the things that we shall not or cannot or should not do instead of what should we do, which he clarifies in verse um, 10, find out what pleases the Lord. So what can we do that God would say, that's good, that's good, pursue that. What is it that God is directing you to do that is not only about putting away sin, but putting on his new self? And in the process of that, then we will have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. We'll know what to avoid. We'll know who to avoid. We'll know places we shouldn't go. We'll, we'll know some boundaries we'll need to set for ourselves to say, no, nah, that wouldn't be safe. Most people can remember the mistakes that they've made by being at the wrong place or with the wrong people. Just stay away. No, no to avoid because you are God's kids. You're part of a different family, children of light. It's a high standard to be imitating God's holiness. In fact, it's an impossible standard because we are not naturally holy at all. 
Holiness is unnatural to everyone. So what do we do? Turn to verse 18. Paul says in this family, uh, there's help. He calls you to be holy, but he would never call you to do something he would not enable you to do. So verse 18 says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. It's a, it's a fascinating metaphor for being filled with the Spirit. Uh, don't get drunk on wine. It's an illustration in the negative of something God wants us to do in the positive. So instead of taking in, being filled with alcohol, be, be filled with the Spirit. So what is that saying? It's like this. A, a drunk person filled with alcohol is yielding control to a substance that will actually prompt or trigger him or her to do things they would not normally do. It's called debauchery. Debauchery, I define it as anything that you wish you hadn't done when you're sober. <laughs> Looking back. So if alcohol misused will trigger you to do things that you shouldn't do, that you would not otherwise have done, in the same way, in a positive, opposite way, when you are filled with the Spirit, you are enabled to do that which you would not normally do that is good and holy. The things otherwise impossible to do. Be filled with the Spirit. You could almost um, replace that word filled with empowered. We can choose to be empowered by the Spirit. God enables what He asks. If your dad ever asked you to mow the lawn, he probably supplied you a lawnmower and gas so you could do it. You supplied the obedience, he supplied the power. Likewise, God does not work apart from our obedience. We cannot obey apart from his power, but he cannot empower apart from our obedience. So it seems like this is like this, this is a description of just regular living as a believer. As we step out in obedience, we cannot do it in our own power, but we must yield to his power and say, God, you know, what you've asked me to do is impossible for me. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. And so as I obey, I depend on his power and these holy traits are then empowered by God. So if you find your, your patterns of sin, let's be honest, call them basically addictions to sin or to something harmful, we can then consciously yield to the Spirit and He can enable us day by obedient day to walk in holiness. When you find sinful habits patterns or attitudes in your marriage we must submit to the spirit and say God enable me to be transformed by the renewing of my mind you find these sinful habits patterns or attitudes in parenting I need the holy every marriage every parenting uh, among Christians needs the Holy Spirit desperately it's the only way to be sanctified which means to grow in holiness the rest of Paul's sentence, 
really continues in, in the Greek language, verses 18 to 21 is one long, typical uh, Pauline uh, sentence. Uh, in some translations, you'll see that. It'll say, speaking to one another, verse 19. Verse 20, giving thanks and submitting. Gets one long sentence because these things all result from being filled by the Spirit. And he applies it now from going from all believers, the church, to a church. So in church, the result of being filled by the Spirit is that we would be speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The opportunity just was the last half hour, right? Singing and making music in our hearts to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. So one of the first ways in which we recognize the work of the Spirit in us as a church family is through musical worship. Uh, In fact, according to this verse, verse 19, who are you singing to? To one another or to the Lord? And the answer is yes. Because it's really both. When you're going to work and you, and you, you, you put some music on, you're singing to the Lord because just you and the Lord, it's there. But when we're in this room, we are speaking to one another for the encouragement. We worship together intentionally. Remember sometimes in, the, in those uh, what, 10 weeks or so we, we didn't have church here? Do you remember the awkwardness when you're, you're, sta- you're by your TV looking at worship? <laughs> and honey, do we sing out loud or just look at the guy saying or what do we do? Because something was missing. This was missing. Because we speak to one another in psalms and hymns. And then, but we're also singing corporately then, we are worshiping God. But musical worship is a Holy Spirit activity that we do publicly and audibly. The heart thing is our attitude, but the, the voice thing is part of worship. God gave you a throat that makes two kinds of sounds. Some are speaking sounds and some are musical sounds. Isn't that an amazing gift that God gave us? He intended us to use it because musical worship is a Holy Spirit activity. You can't do it apart from the Spirit. Anybody can sing, but only the Spirit can make it worship. And you may have noticed at times, if you've, if you've come in with a bad attitude, maybe you and your spouse, you and your kids, uh, had a thing on the way to church, maybe... You walked in and there was someone you have not forgiven or you come in critical of the song or how we're singing it or who's leading it or whatever it might be and it's like worship just drains and probably your voice starts making those musical sounds even too because worship is a holy, musical worship is a Holy Spirit activity. So is giving thanks. That's not normal. Giving critiques, that's normal. But, but, but verse 20, always giving thanks to God the Father. That's a spirit thing, to be thankful consistently. And, and gathering together with one another is that platform to do that. And the sentence still isn't over. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, we're all under Christ's authority, so probably I don't know everything that this body needs to know. Um, my opinion in a staff meeting or board meeting doesn't always win. I try to win. 
But see, the point is that we would submit to one another. So don't be surprised if, if children's ministry isn't exactly the way you want, or Bible studies, or music, or snacks, or schedules, or buildings are not exactly the way you would want because we come together to submit to one another and voila, the church functions because we are submitting to one another as to the Lord in a reverence for Christ. So we begin to get this view of how family works. It starts with God's family. We are under submission to God, seeking to please Him. And so in the church family, we begin to see this sacrificial principle starting to work, submitting to one another. And so we shouldn't be surprised as we now get to the passage about marriage that, guess what? There's sacrifice going both directions. Sacrifice. That's just what, that's what life together is about. But the roles are a bit different in marriage where there is a, a leadership. Just as in churches there are leadership, is leadership. Just as God is the leader, Christ is the head of the body. So there's always ordained leadership. And so in God's plan for the family, he says, guys, you're the leader. As you work together as partners following Christ. So how do we reflect Christ in our marriage We'll get that later. How do we reflect Christ in our marriage? Verse 22, first of all to the wives and then to the husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And our culture gasps or throws tomatoes, um, a wife submitting in our culture is repulsive to some and is even presumed to mean the guy is abusive. That's totally misreading God's plan. Earlier this week, I was uh, talking with Priscilla about the sermon that would be talking about this, and if you know Priscilla and you know me, you know that we are wired so differently in almost every area of life. I mean, we love Jesus and our kids, and after that, you know, we're very different. But loving Jesus and the same kids is amazingly unifying. So one of the areas in which we're different is that um, she does not like to be up front, nor to talk to any group larger than, say, one. <laughs> so... I facetiously said, you know, honey, what I think we'll do this week is I'm going to call you up here for a little discussion about submitting to husbands. And she said, okay, I'll come up there and I'm going to ask you, tell me some way in which I am not. And you know, she kind of had me there. Because in spite of her strong personality, which some of you may know she has or not, she does a really good job of this. And uh, so I said, well, evidently, it's possible to be sassy and submissive at the same time. <laughs> we, we don't need to explain away submission, but we do need to explain and clarify it. 
Because the problem with submission through the centuries is that husbands have often misused these verses, in fact, weaponized them against their wives to wrongly control and even be abusive in one way or another. And wives have resisted that, understandably, because they know somehow that's not right. But it's balanced when you understand both what God has told the wives as well as, jumping ahead for a moment, the husbands, verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That, 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 that changes everything to understand what he's telling the husbands. Just be sacrificial as Jesus on the cross. That's how you, that's how you show your love as the, as the leader of the, of the home. Uh, if husbands don't love sacrificially, they will easily misuse the position of leadership and perhaps their superior physical or emotional power just for their selfish means. And that's hurtful. Happens a lot. But husbands who love like Christ and pursue sacrifice as a lifestyle will not be a burden in this partnership, but a blessing. And I'm convinced that if husbands loved more like Christ, any Christian woman would long to follow a guy like that. But what is God saying then to wives? when he says, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. It's still hard. Because husbands and wives are both sinners. So it's never going to happen perfectly. And for you as a wife, it's going to mean some serious trusting God and waiting for him to lead. I can't fully answer all the complex questions like, well, what if he's not a Christian? What if he's not loving? What if he's really selfish? There will be tensions in your own heart. How does this look? Which is why I think it says, as to the Lord. So, so you have a place to go and say, Lord, what, is this, what does it look like in this situation? Because I really want to obey you. And so how do I pl- apply this in this difficult tension we're having or this decision? And, and what is my role? It, it, it's not easy, but you are seeking to obey the Lord. When that is foundational, you begin to find what that looks like for you. And there's an incredible protection when it says in verse 21, maybe you haven't seen it this way, but for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which he's a savior. This thing of of being the head, wives, that's not a put down. That's a protection because it means God holds him more accountable than you. I really believe that. Man, we are more responsible for how our marriage is going than our wife is. Because responsibility always goes to the head. If you're, think head coach. If you're a Bucks basketball fan like I am, you were very disappointed in our team being seated at number one going into the playoffs and then exiting in the first round with a four to one loss of that series. So who did they fire? Giannis, Middleton? No. They fired Budenholzer because he's the what? Head coach. So if you're going to find someone responsible or accountable, it's going to be the head. So guys, you still want to be the head? Then you you lean into 
taking the most responsibility. So we're going to have to have an attitude really, really similar to Jesus Christ, the head of the church. And what did he do? He's the Savior. He died. He died to himself. The word submission, uh, sometimes maybe it's an English thing, hits us wrong. There's another, there's a synonym for it in this very passage that Paul uses at the very end of the passage in verse 33. When he summarizes the roles of men and women, husbands and wives, he uses the same word twice for men, but he uses an alternate synonym for women, for wives. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must what? Respect her husband. Respect. To submit is to respect. To show respect is the opposite of contempt. Because to show contempt is what deeply hurts a man's soul. So we have to understand it by its opposite. How do we show respect is the question. You'd be thinking, well, he's not worthy of respect. Clothes on the floor, unrealistic expectations of me. Uh, he's made some serious mistakes. He's not worthy of my respect. Let me challenge you, ladies. Uh, I'm guessing you desire unconditional love from him. He is desiring unconditional respect from you. The unconditional thing goes both ways. Unconditional love. So in other words, whether you're worthy of love right then, you long for that love. And whether he's worthy of respect right then, he longs for you to show him that respect. Expressing respect for his work, even if he's unemployed, his desire to work, um, finding ways to show respect. Can you see why we need, the part about the, being filled with the Spirit, we really need that. To be wives who show respect or to be husbands then who love, moving to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is, that is about death. If, and I suppose you bought a Mother's Day card, um, there's probably a symbol like hearts on it or something. The better symbol of a husband's love is a cross. Uh, a place to die to self. If we for a minute think that being the leader means we get our way, we know nothing of the cross. What did Jesus pray the night before? Not my will but yours. So actually, in, a, in this revolutionary God way of thinking, that's a husband's motto, not my will, but yours. There's a sacrifice that's made. So a good way to evaluate how we're doing as husbands, what is the last thing I truly sacrificed for my wife? Or what can I sacrifice more? Because the more we think that way, the easier we make it for her to actually follow us and this partnership, close, warm partnership develops. Verse 28 and 9. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
this, this sounds strange, but in, a, in the right good way, you're loving yourself when you love your wife. Why? Because you are one. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. Uh, I like the way the King James puts it, nourish and cherish, feeds and cares. Guys, um, so, so you're loving yourself. You're not single or independent anymore. You're one flesh, Genesis 2.24. The privileges of marriage are because you are one. And the responsibilities and sacrifice of marriage are because you are one. And you never hate your own body, right, guys? We, you, we love our body. We, I know, Give me good food, wife. Give me time on the recliner, wife. But you're one. So that thinking changes, and, and we want her to have good food good stuff and let her replace the recliner with one that matches the new floor you're getting her just get, I, I'll get in trouble with that one I'm sure <laughs> we know our own desires do we know hers because amazingly as husbands have a generous serving sacrificial attitude it has an amazing effect on a wife's attitude. And uh, showing respect to a guy who's generous, serving, and sacrificial makes life at your address very, very much appealing. Bottom line, verses 32 and 3. This is a profound mystery. Anybody agree marriage is a mystery? <laughs> but I'm talking about Christ in the church. So he says, this isn't just about the husband-wife thing. This isn't independent of what I've been talking about. The church is the model. Christ's love for the church is the model for marriage. However, each of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So our marriage actually is to reflect Christ's relationship to the church, this, this mutual sacrifice and submission. That's a church. That's Jesus and the church kind of a thing. And so that means that our marriage can become like a living, breathing billboard to the neighbor's of how Christ and his church get along. And they want to say, I want to know what's going on in that home and that church that represents Christ in the church. And our marriage can become the number one motivation for our children so that they would grow up and say, I want a marriage like mom and dad. So we begin to see what this looks like. Remember the funnel? Imitate God. And then in God's family, as a child, we imitate him, love and sacrifice. In the church family, we submit to one another through the Spirit. In marriage, we submit wives, sacrifice husbands, and then it just makes sense that then there's going to be some kind of a sacrifice in parenting as well. We're going to, the children must humble themselves and obey, and dads, Specifically, it says, this is, a, this is actually a Mother's Day message that never mentions moms in the passage, okay? But it, it's both. But guys, this issue of being most responsible is, is serious. We'll see in verse 4 of chapter 6. Patiently teach them and point them to God. That's our job. God's family plan is that two sinners get married, right? And then 
usually, often in that family plan, they bring forth babysitters. My, uh, my mother-in-law, Priscilla's mom, I've mentioned before, often would refer to a little newborn saying, you cute little sinner. <laughs> yeah, image of God, cute. Descendant of Adam and Eve, sinner. And so we care about our little sinners so deeply that we care most about their most important need. Now, of course, there's food and shelter and education and soccer and baseball and basketball and volleyball and piano and dance and choir and band and drama, scouts and cheerleading. There's a lot. No, maybe we can't all do all those things, frankly. Because we care about the most important thing, which is found at the end of chapter 6, verse 4. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. If you, if you read through all of chapter 5 and, and the first part of chapter 6, and just underlined every time you see a reference to Jesus Christ or the Lord, who is Jesus Christ, you're underlining a lot. It's all a picture, a reflection of Christ's relationship to us. And, and it says, this is addressing dads, verse 4. Fathers do this. We'll get to that. But it starts with addressing the children, verse 1. So children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. That's from the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. What's the promise? That it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So the two sides of this coin is obedience. Children must obey. And then leadership. Uh, Dads, parents, we must lead them towards Christ. So young people, first of all, notice this verse is written to you. Your parents may have already quoted it to you uh, a lot. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, but then don't forget there is a great promise that goes with it. You'll enjoy life more. And often you'll enjoy more life. Obedience leads to greater safety, which leads to longer lives. Obey your parents. Completely unnatural, just like everything else about the family, right? Completely unnatural, but exactly what the Lord blesses. And so obey your parents in the Lord, everything, because you're really obeying the Lord when you obey parents. So you obey them when, in everything possible. I mean, if they're training you to be a thief, then you check out of that verse and, and obey God. But aside from that, you're obeying them. Because as you obey them, you are actually learning to obey Christ. They, they teach obedience so that you have a pattern when they transfer you to Christ. When does that happen? When does that happen? Nowhere in the Bible, by the way, have I ever found the number 18 when referring to the family? That's somehow an American thing. I mean, it's a, it's, it, somebody had to draw a line for something about adults, but I actually never find the number 18. If there was any release point, listen, to, this is interesting, I think. If there is any release point or transition, it would be 12 in the Bible. And I know some 12-year-old 12 12 year is saying, okay, that's great. 
Because by age 12, in, in Hebrew, uh, in Jewish tradition, and Jesus followed it, by age 12, a child is to be so grown up that a parent hardly has to mention obedience. But the child keeps obeying. Example, Jesus. Jesus was age 12 in the only, look to, the only place where we have a childhood story of Jesus is age 12. They go to the temple for one of the feasts. Jesus stays there. And uh, if you know the story, he stayed in Jerusalem and was talking with the scribes and teachers because he said to his parents later, I have to be about my father's business. So now, at age 12, he is fully relating to his father vertically. His parents come back and say, oh, wait a minute, you've got to come with us. And he says, that's right. Realize he's fully submitting to the father now. I'm about my father's business. But here's what Luke 2.51 says. Then he, that's Jesus, went down to Nazareth with them, that's Mary and Joseph, and was obedient to them. So at age 12, obeying parents like Jesus should become normal. There was more growing up to do, but by age 12, they were to be obeying willingly because they were relating to God. And amazingly, for any teens here, there's an amazing amount of freedom your parents trust you with when you are seeking to obey God by obeying them. And life is better. Honor your father and mother. There's a promise with that. Honor your father and mother is probably more than that Mother's Day card you bought today or some card or gift or kindness because this is a 365-day verse, not just a Hallmark profit-taking day. Honor your parents is basically a synonym for verse 1, obey. So, if you're old enough to read verses 1 to 3, God is writing to you. But what if you, like, you're not old enough to read? Do, do one to five-year-olds or whatever get a pass on obedience because they aren't old enough to read? No, then this is written to parents telling us that we need to make them obey. I'd be happy to discuss personally different ways of doing that, but I'm convinced, and uh, I've heard that there are studies that confirm that by age six, major patterns of obedience and disobedience are set in a child. So those are very important years, and yes, they're going to grow up and they're going to make their own choices whether they will or will not obey, but our responsibility is to teach them obedience. Why? Because we are fathers and mothers, verse 4, who care that they, what? Obey Christ. And we understand that, that all these years with all this, these ages and sizes is about teaching them, preparing them to obey Christ. So in our Christ-likeness, he, he, he addresses dads, a way of, I think, saying parents, and yet saying dads, A, you're more accountable, and maybe he's saying also dads, there's some certain temptations you might have with your strong leadership personality traits. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Uh, I have the word exasperate. Some of you have. Don't, don't provoke them to anger. It's actually a single Greek word that really says, don't make them angry. Well, some, some parents have taken that in a strange, unbiblical way. Just pacify them, whatever it takes. Give them what they want. It's not what it's saying. 
the kids are going to be angry. That's an emotion they're, they're developing. But um, we as parents can unduly, improperly anger them, frustrate them. What are some ways we could do that wrongfully? I think hypocrisy is one of the big ones. Hypocrisy is, is maddening to kids. If we are requiring them to have an attitude they don't see in our relationships. That, that would be frustrating. Hypocrisy. Inconsistency is frustrating. Where we would like toss out threats that we never intend or even couldn't fulfill or only when we're mad enough ever follow through on. So there's no, there's no clarity of can I or can't I get by with this? Inconsistency, hypocrisy, and I think the obvious anger issues. Chapter 4 you know, don't let any unwholesome word comes out of your mouth. That, that includes parenting, put-downs, um, rage, things he's already talked about that are part of living a life worthy of the gospel. But gratefully, then, he's told us, right, in the family, we have the Holy Spirit to be able to live in a different way, parent different than maybe we were parented, and, and have the fruit of the Spirit that maybe we didn't even grow up with, but now we're not, we're not repeating what our parents did. We're we're doing what the Holy Spirit enables. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, those things. Because ultimately our goal is to bring them up in the training and instruction. Uh, King James says, nurture and admonition. The first word is, is more about, I think, modeling, uh, showing as more than telling. The second word, instruction, is all about then telling them the word of God. As Pastor Nate was reading in Deuteronomy 6, talk about the Word of God everywhere you are. Because the family plan of God ultimately is to be discipleship. It's not get them to 18, get them out of the house so they can make a living. The plan is discipleship. And by the way, that's a lifelong modeling thing. Instruction, more when you're younger, but gradually what remains is our are modeling because the biggest need of a kid is to grow in the relationship with God. And so as they watch us with our relationship to God, they watch us that we are reading the Word of God faithfully. They watch us as we participate in, in fellowship and get up in time for kids' build classes. Not because what is being taught here is going to replace what we teach at our address. But it, it's an incredible confirmation that our teaching becomes more credible because people cooler than us are also teaching the same things, maybe in youth group, of the Lord, instruction of the Lord. Our mission, parents, if we accept it, is to point our child to obey Christ, not us, ultimately to obey Christ. Years ago, when I had an oldest son who will not be named, we were, we were having a difficult conversation that pitted his, I'm guessing, 14-year-old will against my 40-ish will. And it was about whether, whether he could have a certain freedom that I wasn't ready to give him. So it wasn't, it wasn't about a sin issue, technically, but can you do this? And I said, it, what came to my mind is, you know, it's like we're having a tug-of-war 
son, with this rope. And you want this much freedom, I'm giving you this much freedom. We're really not that far off. Because we're talking about a, an area of freedom. And then, then it occurred to me, I said, you know this tug of war? I said, you're going to win it. Because the rope is all moving in your direction. As you get older, you're going to get more and more and more. You're going to get all the rope. And when I get to the end of my rope, I'm not giving it to you. I'm giving it to the Lord because we are always under the instruction and accountability to obey Him. And, and that picture helped us in the next several years or the next several kids to just try to picture the fact that we are preparing our children not just to obey us. And then there's a cutoff point, 18 years old. No, we are gradually preparing them to obey the Lord. And I'm convinced that's the, that's the purpose of our homes, is that as we, first of all, align ourselves, chapter 5, verse 1, to imitate God as dearly loved kids and begin to practice that sacrificially like he did for us in the church family. It's going to show that sacrifice and submission will show in our marriage and then in our homes. Perfectly? Not at all. Families are messy because we're sinners. But it will be chaos unless we are submitting ourselves intentionally to the authority of our Father as dearly loved kids. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are, are seeking in our homes to be more like you. And I know that as a group gathers like this or uh, whoever hears this, uh, the only reason we're, we're hearing God's words is because we care about God and we care about his word. And so, Lord, we, we submit ourselves to you, first of all, and, and know that uh, our own growth as your kids is a, is a process. There's a lot of failure. There's, there's a lot of discipline that we experience. There's, there's needs we have. There's longings we have. There's flesh to be um, put down. There is um, direction to be shaped. There's um, mistakes we're all going to make. But Lord, I pray that we would uh, understand we're dearly loved and that you are a gracious God and so that if you are showing us grace for all of our sin, then in our marriages we can be characterized by grace and in our parenting we'll be expressing grace and uh, that your grace would then transform us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.